You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they beheld... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number five. Today we will be discussing Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 7. The first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain stood a tent called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which contained a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go continually into the outer tent, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. I'd like to focus on verse 5 for a moment, where we hear a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The verse says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So in this verse, St. Paul reminds us of the imagery used during the Old Covenant. And yet some would argue that all imagery is prohibited by the second commandment. Strangely enough, as the Lord himself commanded Moses specifically to fashion these images of the cherubim. I say all of this to ask a question regarding icons in the Orthodox Church. There's a very long history here, including the heresy of iconoclasm and the Seventh Ecumenical Council. As Orthodox Christians, icons are part of our daily lives during our prayers and our divine services. Some would say that we worship our icons. Is this true? Well, I appreciate the question, and I understand where you're coming from. But on this podcast in general, I want to keep us focused on Scripture. But ultimately, of course, your question is a scriptural question, and an important one at that. Can you elaborate on that? Well, we're only on our fifth episode of this podcast, but I, I hope our faithful listeners are learning that we always need to step back and view the larger context when we look at scriptural passages. You know, as it relates to your question about icons and iconoclasm, it's very easy for either side of that discussion to cherry-pick verses in the Bible and to dig in their heels on an issue. But I want to make sure that people really explore the Bible from a bigger picture. Because only when you see the bigger picture can you understand correctly what's going on in more narrow circumstances. Uh, just in general, I'm cautious about people who are polemical or who try to give you easy answers about issues. Uh, there's a lot more complexity and gray in the world. and I know we often like easy answers because then we don't have to think very much. We don't have to challenge ourselves. We don't have to question anything in our own minds. Uh, but if that's our approach to life, then we'll often be misled. So what is the bigger picture here? What's going on? Again, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this topic, because to understand icons, you have to understand the Greek word ikon, which very simply means image. And as you might have guessed, this is a biblical word, and an important one, one that's used uh, in the Septuagint. The first thing that comes to mind to me when I hear that word, and as it relates to the Bible, is the story of creation in Genesis 1. 
where God says, let us make man in our own image. Yep, you're spot on with where I was going. Uh, that, that's where we first hear ikon in the Bible. Uh, right away in the beginning, in Genesis 1, the sixth day of creation. So this is a very important word and concept. So what exactly does that mean, that God created us in his image? It definitely seems to be an important point that many of the fathers and biblical scholars discuss. Absolutely. It, it's a foundational concept, and it gets to the very root of what the Bible's doing and, and the message it's conveying to us human beings, its reader. What is it saying, then? To understand it, we have to understand the importance and function of images in the ancient world. Uh, at the time the Old Testament was written, images were of the utmost importance to societies. Specifically, you would see images or idols of the gods or deities in the ancient cities. Uh, closely related to that, there were images of the kings or rulers of the city, as these men were thought to be appointed by the gods to rule. So that sounds like the concept of the divine right of kings. Yes, I exactly. That's where that comes from. That's how the ancient world functioned. Uh, you even see this in modern times to an extent uh, in the United States. I mean, look at the images on our coins and on our bills. Uh, even though our country uh, doesn't follow the concept of the divine right of kings, you can still see the connection. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But in terms of the ancient world, the image of the city's gods and of the city's king uh, let the subjects know who was in charge. And the Old Testament just blows that whole system up. How so? Well, as you mentioned earlier, the second commandment forbids images of idols. Uh, again, this is a radical counter-cultural concept at the time of the Bible, uh, completely out of the norm for its time. Uh, putting all this together, the second commandment, and prior to that, what we mentioned about humanity being created in God's image in Genesis 1, uh, the Bible is going totally against the grain of the systems in place during its time. Uh, specifically, look at Genesis 1. The, uh, the Bible's saying that this notion of the divine right of kings that you reference above is a silly notion. Uh, humanity as a whole is created in God's image. It's the responsibility of, of every human being, of humanity as a whole, to present God to the rest of creation. It's not something that only the king can do. And God is not represented by a king, nor is he represented by an idol that is fashioned by human beings. That makes me think of the Palioleos hymn that we sing at church. Yeah, good, good point. Uh, Psalm 135. Uh, I'll quote from it here. Uh, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of, the, of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. So in other words, uh, Psalm 135 is uh, taking a jab at how silly it is to trust in something that you made. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand, is saying that God is unseen, and all that you're left with uh, is this book, the Bible, Scripture, that tells you how to live God's will. And in that book, you hear from the very beginning, from Genesis 1, that you are God's image because you're a human being. Therefore, you are to make God present just as others in the ancient world thought it was solely the king's responsibility to make God present. So what does it mean then to be created in God's image? Does it mean that we have a will to choose from good and evil, that we are a rational creature, that there's some sort of divine spark in us? What does it mean? Personally, and, and this is just my personal 
take on it. I don't like to waste my time discussing uh, this issue, the how does it work, how, why, etc. As, as I said on our last episode, uh, to me these questions, uh, these why questions, are irrelevant and, and often miss the point. To me the question is always what. What do I do with it? A- as I said, the Bible doesn't leave us with an image. It leaves us with a book that tells us God's will. And his will is for us to behave a certain way, to focus on the what should we do. So I just leave it as it is. To be in God's image means we are to present him to the rest of creation and to our fellow human beings. And when we do that by living as he lived, which was again a radical concept in the ancient world, to take care of the poor, the needy, the disenfranchised, the weak. I'd like to go back to one other point you mentioned about the kings and how, if I understood you correctly, getting rid of the idols is basically getting rid of this system of the kings. What's going on there? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, The Bible is systematically anti-kingly. It's opposed to the kings. And what I mean by that is that the Bible portrays the kings in a very bad light because there's only one true king, God, And he rules graciously and for the benefit of others, while the kings of the earth rule for their own benefit, not for the benefit of their subjects. And you see this most clearly in 1 Samuel 8, one of my favorite passages. Uh, For the sake of time, I'll just summarize it here, but I encourage our listeners uh, who might be unfamiliar with that passage to look it up later today. Again, 1 Samuel 8. In short, Israel asks the prophet Samuel to give them a king, and notably so that they could be, quote, like all the nations. In other words, they're basically rejecting uh, the system that I just mentioned, where you're left with God's will and no king, that God had given them so they would be uh, different than the nations. Now Samuel realizes that's not good for Israel. So he prays to the Lord, and the Lord essentially says, Look, Sam, don't, don't be down about yourself. The people haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And we parents know how this happens sometimes uh, with our kids when they reject our will. And so to instruct them, we say what God said to Samuel. Go ahead. Let them have a king if that's what they really want. It'll teach them a lesson. So Samuel goes back to the people. And he tells them what God said, and he says to them again, one of my favorite passages. He says, The Lord said to go ahead with this idea if that's what you really want. But I'm going to warn you first. The king's going to own you. He's going to take the best of your crops, the best of your cattle, the best of your people, and he's going to use them for his own benefit. He's going to take your money, he's going to use it, and your sons and daughters to fight his wars for his own glory and for his own benefit. And in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel say, yes, go ahead. We want a king to fight our wars and to rule over us. And again, this was ultimately a rejection of God, a rejection of his will, of his law, of his book, and a rejection of the fact that God created all of humanity in his image. So you're saying the story in 1 Samuel 8 relates back to Genesis 1. Yes, absolutely, and not just Genesis 1, but then moving into Genesis 2. If you just follow the narrative, you see it. Uh, God creates humanity, and very specifically in Genesis 1, it says male and female, he created them. So all of humanity in his image. 
And, you know, then in Genesis 2, you move to the garden, and everything's fine. You have your food, you have your shelter, you're in God's presence. In other words, you don't need a king for any of that except for, of course, God as your king. You simply abide in God's presence and live according to his will. And then the famous story of what we call the fall shows how we screw it all up by disobeying God and furthermore by not repenting afterwards. You know, notice how Adam blames Eve and Eve uh, blames the serpent and neither Adam nor Eve repent or take accountability. Uh, So that right there is the beginning of the end. We start disobeying God. Uh, But then in, in 1 Samuel 8, it begins by saying the judges were not walking in the way of God. And as I outlined, uh, that's uh, the people then decide that they want to be like the nations. That's why they uh, approach Samuel. They want a king instead of the uh, judges, and ultimately uh, they want idols that are made by their own hands. And then you really, uh, you really have a disaster then. I mean, look at the book of Kings and Chronicles. Uh, the nation of Israel just goes completely off the rails, even to the point that Scripture, the Mosaic Law, is lost completely. What do you mean? The, the law was lost? Yeah, when, if, when you get to uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, so almost you know, towards the end of the book of, of the Kings, Hilkiah, who was the high priest under the reign of Josiah, is doing work uh, to repair and restore the temple. And he actually just he stumbles across the Mosaic Law. Uh, it might be easy to miss unless you're an attentive reader, but what, what's going on here is that the book of the law had been completely lost. So Israel has just been behaving like the nations under these kings, and that all began in, in, in 1 Samuel 8. And they were so off track, they didn't even realize they had been given God's law. It's just astounding if you, if you think about it. Okay, Father, so we're, we're running out of time on today's podcast, and I appreciate the discussion and the lessons, but I'd like to go back to my original question for a moment. Can you tell me how all this relates to what I asked about icons and images in the Bible and in the Orthodox Church? Sure. Uh, what I'm getting at is that there's the spirit of the law and there's the letter of the law. If you really want to understand the law, you always have to understand the spirit. And that goes, you know, not just in the Bible, but even in civil law. And that's what I've been trying to drill home on this podcast, the spirit of the law. So if you take the second commandment at face value, if you just rip it out of its context, it might appear to just strictly forbid all images. But when you look at the broader context, that's not the spirit. Uh, You mentioned, uh, even in your original question, the the, the fact that uh, the images of the cherubim were directed by God himself. Uh, And what I've been trying to explain is that there's this whole meaning behind the prohibition against idols, and it all comes back to the fact that we are icons, that we human beings are created in God's image, which means that we're to represent God to one another and to the entire created world. Uh, So very briefly, when, when you're talking about icons, you're talking about using images of events from the Bible, which can be very instructive and and helpful as it's just another mode, another medium to express and teach the biblical story. You're talking about images of Christ, of Mary, of the saints, images of people who actually existed and who inspire us to live holy lives. In short, then, these images, uh, you know, unless someone is actually worshiping uh, worshiping them, which, of course, is is forbidden in, in the Orthodox Church, Uh, So these images do not violate the spirit of the second commandment because, as we discussed, the meaning of this commandment is much broader than 
uh, being just on images themselves. It's about an entire worldview and way of life and way of understanding our relationship to God, to each other, and indeed uh, to the whole of creation. Thank you, Father. In today's episode, Father Aaron emphasized the importance of the spirit of the law over the letter of the law, meaning that we should seek to understand Scripture in its totality and not within a very narrow context, separating isolated passages from the bigger, overarching picture. In responding to the question of what it means to be created in God's image, Father Aaron again reminded us to focus on what now and not the why. In other words, our focus should be on how we live our lives. Because we are icons of God created in his image, we have a responsibility to present him to all of creation. And in doing so, we are to live as Christ lived, to care for the poor and the weak, and to spread the message of God's love and reconciliation for all creation. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God. O our God and our hope, glory to thee.